0: After you place your marker there, take your Bibles out and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, that will be our first reading this morning. As Brother Greg mentioned, we do have such a good number with us. We are very grateful that you're here. We're very thankful for our visitors. We're very grateful that you're here as well and invite you back any chance you have to come and worship with us. This morning as we continue our series looking at the first principles... Very briefly, remember, we're not talking about the steps of salvation. Usually when we hear first principles, we think about the hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And of course, I like to add the sixth one, to live faithfully. Those are all very important to our salvation, and they warrant further, stu- uh, further study. And in fact, it may be a series um, not in the too distant future. But this series, is what we're doing is we're actually taking a step back from that, And we're talking about there are things that are even more fundamental to our salvation uh, than the the five steps that we often talk about. And so this morning, what what we're going to be looking at is the idea that the Bible convicts the world of sin. A lot of people don't like the Bible. A lot of people would like for the Bible to go away because when you read the Bible, it tells us so much about God, tells us so much about who he is, what he's done for us, but it also very clearly lays out that God does not accept all forms of of lifestyles. God does not accept things just because we like to do it. God clearly sets out in his word what things are acceptable and what things are unacceptable. Before we go too much further, we've kind of mentioned this already, but let's just have a very brief review of what we've studied so far. Remember, in our first lesson, we said that there is one God and his name is Jehovah. If we're going to understand first principles, foundational things to our belief and to our faith, we must start with the fact that there is a God and his name is Jehovah. In, our, in the next lesson, we said that, well, that God had a son. not have, He has a son, and his name is Jesus. Jesus was a real person. He walked upon this earth, but he is the Son of God, and he is God. That is foundational. That is fundamental to our faith and our belief. Jesus is the Son of God. In our last lesson, we said that God wrote a book when we look at the bible the bible is the inspired word of god this is what he has revealed and we'll talk a little bit more about this in just a moment but we said there are three main things or at least in my mind three main reasons why i believe that the bible is god's word first we said when we look at the archaeological evidence when we look at at the world around us when we look at history History proves the accuracy of the Bible. The next thing that in my mind proves to me that this is God's word is when you look and you see how many manuscripts, copies of of the original text that we have. The threshold for ancient documents is very low in a lot of instances. But yet when you look at the New Testament, there are thousands and thousands of complete or near complete manuscripts and tens of thousands of fragments. You can only say that has to be the hand of God. Only God could preserve his word in such a way that we have the evidence to prove that, yes, it is God's word. And then finally, probably in my mind, the biggest reason why I believe that the Bible is God's word is because the prophecies that we read in there. When we read about how specific the prophecies are and how they came to pass exactly hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years before or after it was prophesied, it happened exactly the way that God said it would. Prophecy is a huge proof that the Bible is God's word. So as you think a bit further into that, and you see on the overhead that the Bible is God's word, uh, don't worry, this isn't a carbon copy from our last sermon. And yes, I realize we talked a lot about this last time, but there are some things that I want to cover just very briefly again with the idea that the Bible is God's word. Once again, here in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, God, all scripture is God-inspired. In verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We understand that the Bible equips us to serve God better. If we want to call something a good work, If we say something is good, then it must be based upon some standard. And the standard that we use is the Bible. The Bible tells us what is good and what is acceptable to God. I appreciate Brother Greg reading this. Go back to Psalm 119. Psalm chapter 119. We also read this verse this morning in our first sermon. Quickly again, The writer says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's what God's word does. It illuminates the way that God would have us walk. It tells us exactly what God expects of us. And it guides us, if we let it, it guides us to be closer to him. Well, I appreciate Brother Greg jumping up a little bit and reading verses 97 through 104. I want to point out a few things as we read this again about what God's word does. In verse 97, the writer says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How important should God's word be to us? Extremely important. Because look what it does. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. So in the word, the law We understand God's commandments and we get wisdom. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand again more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. Now notice verse 101, I have restrained my feet from every evil way. Once again, God's word sets forth A standard. In God's word, we have that which is good, which is lawful. And here the writer tells us when we live within God's word, then we restrain our feet from evil. It says that I might keep your word. Verse 102, I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding... Now notice the end here. Therefore, I hate every false way. That's a lot jam-packed in just these few verses, is it not? A lot about what God's Word does. It teaches us. It makes us wiser. It helps us understand. But more importantly, it teaches us what God doesn't want. What God considers evil and what God considers false. That's what God's Word does. That's what what God wants us to understand about His Word. Keep it in the book of Psalm. Let's go to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. And once again, this is a very familiar psalm. You know, we remember this psalm so much, probably from the song that we sing, right? Starting in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, Once again, how amazing is God's word here? The law of the Lord is perfect. It needs no help. It needs nothing added to it. It needs nothing taken away from it. The law of the Lord is perfect. And look what it does for us. It converts our souls. It leads us, Psalm 119, 105 again, it leads us to God. And if we want God, and if we want Jesus, look at how God's word is going to be to us. Better than gold. Better than honey. That's what God's word is. Once again, we know verses 7 through 10, I would say fairly well, do we not? You know, if you're like me as we're reading through that, were you singing the song as well? (laughs) I was. You know, we know those verses. Don't leave out verse 11. Because of how amazing God's word and all the things it does for us. Verse 11, moreover, by them, all the things that we read about, right? The law of the Lord, the justice, the judgments, the testimonies, all those things. By them, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Do you get the point we're trying to make here? Yes, God's Word is amazing. Yes, it tells us exactly what God wants us to do, but it warns us. And it says God does not approve of these. This is against God's Word. These are things that God is not for. It tells us about sin. The Bible convicts us of sin. The Bible tells us that sin is lawlessness. If we have the perfect law of God and we're saying that sin is lawlessness, then we put that together and we understand that sin is transgressions from the perfect law of God. The Bible convicts of sin. Having convictions, what we see more and more, convictions aren't very popular in our society. And the reason why convictions are not popular is because convictions say that there is right and there is wrong. It makes it black and white, it makes it easy to understand. You think about the Bible. The Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. Well, what if somebody's starving? What if they have a really good reason? There's no good reason. The Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. When we look at that, do you, are you convicted that the Bible is right, or are you convicted that the Bible is wrong? It's either or. You can't do both. People don't like convictions. A conviction is simply a firmly held belief or opinion. That's what a conviction is. I believe something. I am convicted about something. That's what a conviction is. Brethren, so many pride themselves that, you know what, we're just so open-minded, we're so progressive, you know, we can change our minds, we can change just on a whim. One of my favorite teachers in high school used to always tell us, have an open mind, absolutely, but don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. Brethren, I think that's where we are as a society we are so worried, so scared that we're going we're gonna to offend somebody or somebody's not going to like what we say. We want to be liked. And so because of that, well, we just go with the flow. What's popular today? What do people want to hear today? And can I suggest to you this morning that that thought process has no place in religion. That mentality has no place when we look at God's word. In fact, quite the opposite. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. You You'll remember that Paul is coming to the end of his life. He recognizes that. And so he's writing to his beloved son in the faith and he is encouraging him to continue the fight, to continue preaching. And in verse 2 he says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers." And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Is that not exactly what we're talking about this morning? I don't like what you teach, so I'm going to go find somebody who teaches something different. I don't like what your church says about this topic, so I'm going to go find another church that teaches the opposite of what you teach. I don't want to hear what you have to say because I want to hear something else. That's exactly what happens here. And Satan is very effective because he recognizes that if people don't want to hear the truth and they have people who claim to speak truth in the name of religion, even though it's against what the Bible says, well, people will eat it up. People will accept it. And brethren, that's what we're seeing today, is it not? Is that not what we see? People, they have itching ears. They don't want to hear truth. And so they'll find somebody who will teach to them lies. It's the same thing that we saw in the in the history of Israel, is it not? Do not prophesy to us truth, prophesy to us smooth things. Things that we want to hear, things that we like, things that make us feel good, because we as a people we tie religion to feelings. If a church isn't making me feel good, then it's not a religious church. Brother, that's wrong. That is wrong. Now should we edify one another? Of course. But we have to make sure that we do it according to truth. Look in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Notice in verse 14. Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. He says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of of deceitful plotting once again the mentality or the idea you're not just going whichever way you want to there is truth there is a standard and we either follow that or we don't and he likens this to like just being just tossed children going whichever way they want to does that describe us or are we grounded do we have truth do we have that anchor that the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9? This hope we have as an anchor. Isn't it amazing when you take Ephesians 4, that idea of being tossed to and fro with every wind? In my mind, I get this picture of a boat that's being just driven because it has nothing. It has no anchor. The writer of Hebrews says you have to have that anchor, that anchor of hope. So which one are we? Are we tossed to and fro? Or are we anchored to Jesus? Anchored to that hope that we find in God? It's one at the other. Which one are we? John 14, John chapter 14, 15, and 16. Turn to John 16. We're not going to read all three chapters, obviously, this morning. But in John 14, 15, and 16, what we see is that Jesus lays out the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, do we understand everything about the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. But we can understand what God tells us here in these chapters about what the Holy Spirit does. And one of the things that Jesus makes it very clear is that he is promising that the Holy Spirit will come. And in chapter 16, notice starting in verse 8. He says, and when he, this is talking about the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin in verse 13 jesus tells us however when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will tell you things to come so let's think about what jesus said told us about the holy spirit here he's going to convict the world of sin of righteousness and of judgment he is going to guide the apostles in all truth. Well, where's he getting this from? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Once again, we read this passage in our first service, but let's go ahead and read, verse again, uh, read this verse again. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10. Paul tells us that God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So let's put it together. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He guides to all truth. He gets that all truth from the Father. Because that's where he hears it from. Jesus himself says he does not speak to his own authority, but he speaks what he's heard from the Father and from the Son. So the Holy Spirit reveals exactly what God wanted him to reveal. Let's look at one more passage. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 corinthians chapter 13 what is first corinthians 13 usually known for well it's the love chapter paul talks about love and what love does and absolutely that is part of it but the part that i was to think about this morning really jumps back to like chapter 10 of first corinthians because the church at corinth had a problem well they had a lot of problems one of the problems that they had was with spiritual gifts People had this mentality, oh, I can speak in tongues. Therefore, I am more important than you who could prophesy or you who could do something else. Tongues was the preeminent gift. And Paul's point here is that no, all spiritual gifts work together to edify God, but they were abusing them. And so Paul is laying out the argument, laying out the case Don't abuse the spiritual gifts. Use them to glorify the body, to glorify God. But then he says there's a better way at the end of chapter 12. He says earnestly, verse 31, earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent, a better way. Then he starts talking about love. But I want to drop down to verse 10. Paul is saying spiritual gifts have a purpose. They confirm the word of God. But in verse 10, but when that which is perfect, your version may say complete, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. What's Paul talking about here? What's perfect and what's in part? Well, do you remember Psalm 19? The law of the Lord was what? It was perfect. So the Holy Spirit is going to guide. He's going to preserve God's word. He's going to give us the complete word of God. And when that happens, those things that are in part, what's he been talking about for three chapters? Spiritual gifts. When those that are in part will be done away. Do we need to prophesy anymore today? No, we have the complete word of God. Do we need spiritual gifts today? No, we have them confirmed. John 20 verses 30 and 31. That we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. That's what the Bible is. The perfect, complete word of God. And it does everything that Jesus said it would do. It convicts the world of sin. It convicts of righteousness. And it convicts of all those things. It convicts the world of sin. For the rest of our time this morning, very quickly, I want to look at three examples. Three examples in the Bible of people or groups that were convicted of sin. And look at how they responded. But we're going to play a little bit of what if. Think about how they could have responded. So let's just jump right into it. I want to think about the city of Nineveh. Think about the city of Nineveh. Well, what was the city of Nineveh? Well, we know it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Well, who were the Assyrians? What were they known for? Well, they were a very strong nation. They're the ones who took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, but they were also known for their cruelty. They were a very wicked nation. Do you remember the prophet that was sent, at least one of them, there were two, there were probably multiple ones, but the most famous one in our mind that was sent to Nineveh to prophesy? Of course, that was Jonah. Go to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Do you ever wonder what kind of prophet Jonah was? Have you ever wondered how much he really cared about the message that he was sending? How motivated he was? Now, I, I know we could argue and say, well, he was swallowed up by a fish for three days. You would think he would be highly motivated. He was motivated to go. But how motivated were you, do you think he was in his delivery of his message? In chapter 3 and verse 4, it just says, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's wall. And then he cried out and said, yet 40 days. And Nineveh shall be overthrown. The reason I ask this question is because when you come to chapter 4, and when Nineveh actually repents, was Jonah happy about that? <laughs> Look in verse 2. So Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Within that context, I ask you again, how motivated of a preacher or a prophet do you think Jonah really was? Do you think that he really cared about the people? Do you think that he really wanted them to be saved? No, he didn't. That's why he fled. Think about how Nineveh could have reacted to the preaching of Jonah. Yet yeah, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. How could they have reacted? Well, I think we can see from other stories about the Assyrians exactly how they could have reacted. Go back to Second uh, Kings chapter 18. 2nd Kings chapter 18. Do you remember a man by the name of the Rabshakeh? He was sent by the king of Assyria to Jerusalem to try and negotiate a surrender. And while the Rabshakeh is talking to the officials in Jerusalem, he makes several claims and several boasts. About the Assyrians. One about how mighty of a nation they are. Remember how he mocks Israel? I'll give you horses and if you can find people to to ride them, if you can find people to man the chariots, they're yours. Oh, you think you're so strong? Look at all these other nations that we've conquered. We'll drop down to verse 33. Look at the attitude of the Rob Shaka has towards foreign you know, false gods, but foreign gods. In verse 33, he says, Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? The point I'm trying to make here, brethren, is that the people of Nineveh could have had this same attitude. Who's going to overthrow our city? Who is Jehovah? Isn't that what Pharaoh said to Moses? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? You got a preacher who probably didn't care a lick about the people. He probably wasn't that enthusiastic with his message. He was preaching an unpopular message to a people who obviously didn't care about other gods, how could the people of Nineveh reacted to this? But Isn't, isn't it amazing how they did react? I should have told you to keep a finger there in Jonah. Let's go back to Jonah chapter 3. And let's look at exactly how they reacted. They didn't reject it. They didn't kill Jonah. They didn't ex- expel him from their city. Jonah preaches, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covering himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Why did the people change? Why did they repent? It wasn't because Jonah was such a great preacher. It wasn't necessarily because they they held Jehovah in higher esteem than all these other gods. No, they were convicted of their sin. They were convicted and they turned, they changed, and what did God do? He relented His punishment. Let's look at another example. Let's look at David. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Once again, we know this story. In chapter 11 is David and Bathsheba, right? David commits adultery. A child is conceived. And to hide all of that, he tries to get Uriah to go back to his wife to cover it up. And when Uriah won't do that because he is an honorable man, David murders him. Well, in chapter 12, we see that Nathan, a prophet of God, comes to David, and he tells him a story. The story about the rich man and the poor man. Oh, the rich man had plenty of flocks. He had herds, but this poor family only had one little lamb, and he treated it like it was family. Well, guests were coming for the rich man, and the rich man, instead of taking it from his own flock, he went and took the lamb from the poor man, slaughtered it. That's what he fed his guests. And do you remember David's reaction to this story? He was furious, and rightly so. He says that man will repay fourfold of what he took, and his life will be forfeit. He is angry. He is mad. Look at verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Could you imagine what a sinking feeling David would have had at this point? David recognized restitution had to be paid. He recognized he was ready to execute judgment on this man. And Nathan goes, "You're the man." How could David react to that? Well, there are several different ways. Do you remember Jeremiah always says he's my favorite prophet? Do you remember what happened to him because he dared speak against the king, because he dared prophesy things that the people didn't want to hear? They wanted to kill him, but instead they just threw him into prison. And we're not talking about a prison where he was treated humanely. (laughs) He was put in a pit where he sank. Remember when they finally tried to get him up, they they had to put bags under his arm to lift him up gently because they were afraid he would be injured? David could have very easily have said, Nathan, Get out of my sight. If I see you again, I'm going to kill you. He could have been like that. It's not on your overhead this morning, but he could have been like Saul, right? Well, you know, really, Nathan, it was Bathsheba's fault. Why are you only coming to me? Why aren't you going to her as well? Because, you know, she's the one. You know, he could have offered excuses. David could have done that. There are a lot of different ways that David could have reacted to this. But how does he react? Chapter 12, verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. What a profound statement, right? No excuses. No, but but but, I've sinned against the Lord. If there's any question of how David felt about this, go to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. I'd recommend you go home and read the entire chapter. We're not going to this morning for time's sake. But I want to point out a few verses here. Psalm 51, notice in verse 14. David says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, when he hears, You are the man, you are convicted of your sin, he simply says, I've sinned. He has a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So the men of Nineveh, they repent and God spares them. David, he repents. He says, I have sinned and God relents. He has to suffer the consequences, absolutely. But his life is not forfeit. Let me give you one more example. We've had two good examples, right? The men of Nineveh And now David, let me give you an example that's maybe not as good. What about Felix? Do you remember Felix? Go to Acts chapter 24. It's not been that long ago since we studied this in our auditorium Bible class, so hopefully this is still fresh. But you remember in Acts chapter 24 that Paul is giving a defense. Felix was the governor of Judea, the Roman official And in verse 24, it says after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, verse 25. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. Why does that sound really familiar? That sounds an awful lot like what we read in John about the Holy Spirit, right? Convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So, Paul to Felix, he talks about righteousness, self control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, Go go away for now, for when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Why was Felix afraid? I mean, Paul is just talking about righteousness, he's talking about self-control, he's talking about judgment. What would make Felix afraid? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. But I think history tells us why Felix was so afraid. It's interesting how Luke records specifically that Drusilla, his wife, came with Felix. And it's interesting how Luke also records that Drusilla was Jewish. She was a daughter of Herod. When you go to history, history tells us that it was not a lawful marriage. This was actually Felix's, I believe, third wife. And this would have been Drusilla's at least second, if not third, husband. Do you think that came up when Paul's talking about righteousness and self-control? Do you think the consequences of what they're doing was coming up when he talked about the judgment to come? From his reaction, I think absolutely. So once again, how could have Felix reacted to Paul's preaching? He could have recognized that they were in the wrong. Recognized that something had to change, and he could have done it. He could have changed. He, he could have made his life Right. But how did he respond? Verse 26, Meanwhile, he, also Felix, also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. What do you think they talked about? Do you think Paul changed his message? Do you think that Paul changed what he talked about? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come? How long did this go on? Verse 27, two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. For two years, Felix heard preaching and teaching. Can I suggest to you this morning that I believe that Paul would have been a more motivated preacher and teacher than Jonah was? He cared more about people than I believe that Jonah felt about the Ninevites, And yet Felix just says, go away. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. We don't know for certain what happened, but I believe believe the way the Bible leaves it, a convenient time never came. Was he convicted of his sin? I believe so. He was afraid, was he not? Did that conviction lead to anything? It did not. Take out your songbooks. books. Turn to the number the brother Greg selected. The Bible is more than just a storybook. I believe so many people look at the Bible the same way they would look at Aesop's fables. Good stories to read with, with some kind of moral at the end, right? The Bible is more than that. The Bible tells us what God finds acceptable and what's unacceptable? The problem is, people don't like to have restrictions placed upon their life. You mean I can't do this? You mean I can't do this and still be found acceptable to God? What does God's Word say? There are things that God accepts, and there are things that He rejects. Years ago, I remember talking with Brother Hobo Eubanks, and he told me something that, that's really stuck with me over the years. When you're asking yourself, should I do something? You fill into something. Whatever it is, should I do this? He said, ask yourself this. Does it fall under a fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Does it fall under a fruit of the Spirit? Or does it fall under a work of the flesh? Because if we're honest... We'll know which one it falls under. Well, it's kind of... It's not kind of. Which one is it? The Bible convicts the world of sin. It's up to each of us as how we're going to respond to it. Will we be like Nineveh? Will we change and repent? Will we be like David, even when confronted? Personally, you are the man. You're a sinner. What will we do with that? Or will we be like Felix? Felix? Okay, I'll take care of it later. I'll do something about it when it's more convenient. How are we going to respond? But you know what the beauty about the gospel is? The gospel tells us that we don't have to stay condemned in our sins. And Lord willing, next week, we'll wrap this series up with that lesson. This morning, we haven't really talked about how to become a Christian Spoiler, that's next week. But this morning, if you're here and you've never been buried in the waters of baptism, we'll be happy to study with you. We'll show you in God's Word. Passages like 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, there's an antitype which now saves us, baptism. We'll be happy to study with you. For those of us that are Christians, once again, we ask ourselves the question. We know we sin, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What are we going to do about the sin? Are we going to repent and change? Or kick the can down the road? Remember, the Bible tells us we're not promised tomorrow. Now is the day of salvation. If you're here and there's anything that we can do to help, if, if you want to study God's Word, if you want us to pray for you, pray with you, we'll be happy to do that. If you're subject to the invitation this morning, will you let us know as we stand and as we sing this song?